Hello and welcome back to Organised Sound. My name is Joshua Gibbard. I'm a music supervisor and producer at Siren. And I'm Sean Rogers, creative director and head of supervision also at Siren. In this podcast, we get a behind-the-scenes insight into the composers behind the music you hear on your favourite commercials and films. In this, our second episode, we speak to Chris White, a UK-based composer who writes for film, TV and advertising, who has worked on some of the biggest primetime projects of the past decade. We worked alongside Chris on the Coca-Cola Christmas 2021 advertising campaign with the spot titled Chimney. We begin our conversation by revisiting the soundtrack and diving deep with Chris about how it all came together. I still love it. Yeah, it's so good. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's so nice. The whole spot, like... Smashed it. <laughs> <laughs> no more to say. We're done. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> How does it feel watching it? Like, because you said you hadn't seen it in a while before this morning. Uh, it feels very relaxing to watch it, actually, when it's all finished <laughs> and in the bag. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't quite as relaxing at the time, but um, no, it's... Uh, yeah, it's really nice to kind of come back to it and look without the sort of furore of everything yeah. going on but it's cool yeah there's like a lot of sections in it like, did you start with a specific section in mind when you like initially looked at it when you working with a piece that's already 
kind of together is mm. you, you've kind of got to attack it as a, a as a piece. Yeah. Um, there are certain points where you sort of obviously want to hit certain things, but it's just it's such a kind of flowing piece that it's it's sort of put it down, see what lands where, and then um and then yeah. kind of work from there. But it all actually came together quite easily with the luckily with the sort of flow of the music yeah. so there wasn't too much kind of massaging yeah because as you say it's with that people's expectations thing i think with a track like this because it's so well known and so well loved you like you do have to be quite careful about how much you play around with it because people's ear their kind of subconscious expectation is that they know what phrase is coming next so yeah. if you play around with it too much and then that doesn't land where they're expecting it, it kind of jars yeah i mean that's quite it's kind of restricting in a way but it's also quite nice to know that you've got that sort of pool of material that you can kind yeah. of pull in and you're not sort of looking <laughs> for a chorus or something you, you know yeah what's coming where but um it, it kind of fitted the piece beautifully really which is um which is always helpful I mean, Josh put the track forward from the beginning, so and then, yeah, just everyone fell in love with it. And I think because we were on this project from so early doors as supervisors, it was so nice because we kind of knew that everyone was really attached to it. And then we started looking at orchestral scored versions of it because obviously it needed to be so storytelling to fit the different sections and fit with the picture. So then it was, it, yeah, it just really worked well. I just wanted to kind of loop back to that kind of people's expectations thing. Like, how did you feel about taking on a track like this? Because it obviously isn't a traditional Christmas piece, but it is incredibly well loved. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of tricky because obviously you don't want to... People are attached to it, so you don't want to do anything that's going (laughs) to kind of go against that. It's just, I mean, it's a great piece of music and it's very... sort of the storytelling element of it is sort of naturally there so it's not something that you have to work hard on but I mean this is this is probably the first kind of re-record that I've done actually Um, no way really yeah which is kind of I've pitched a few but this is the first one that's um that sort of worked out but it was um it was quite a different experience to writing a piece of your own right um but it's always nice to kind of go in knowing that you've got a, a hit behind you you've got the backing there <laughs> yeah. was there anything in the track that kind of surprised you when you kind of obviously as i say it is really well known but then when you kind of get into it and you're reworking it and rearranging it for another picture was there any elements in there that you're like oh i didn't notice that phrase or yeah there's actually one little chord sequence that i sort of played the piece felt sort of round it on the piano and I kind of missed it and then I went back and listened to the original and there's a kind of descending chord pattern that's that's actually really nice that you don't sort of notice but it's like that for me was a real bit I was like I definitely want to get that in because it's almost you're not expecting it but it it was there that's so so nice so that kind of thing where you just go through and you've never noticed is it's quite nice to just sort of discover something yeah so weird when you're like actively listening to individual parts and yeah, stuff. Yeah. it kind of just swells over you normally <laughs> I mean, it's actually it's quite an interesting piece because it doesn't really have a sort of chorus and a verse and a it is the same pattern all the way through apart from uh, one little sort of refrain so it's i mean that was one of the challenges with sort of developing something because obviously you haven't got the lyrics to work with um so you're kind of you're trying to d- keep it going for three minutes and keep it interesting yeah yeah hold that interest pretty much the same track sort of over and over again through the sort of 
different sections and that's why I kind of got to love a key change that always yeah. helps you out doesn't it <laughs> and also like big shout out to Simon Lloyd who is the ECD on this I think it was really interesting that because I kind of really early doors there was a bit of like do we want to go straight kind of classical orchestral or do we want to add some sort of big band flair in there and then he was super keen from yeah from really early as well, like just to hear that. And I think that's where that there's a really nice uh, brass line in there that kind of comes through through the post office scene. Yeah, I think that that really helps. And that's obviously brings it to life and gives it something a bit unexpected that you're not you're not kind of quite ready for. Um, and I think it was quite tricky for the brass, actually, because I've kind of written it on the keyboard and then we got into the session and everyone sort of stood up at the end and clapped the trumpet player and you're thinking, maybe I should have done it a key, key yeah. down or something. Oh, maybe that was a tough line for him. I think it's that, that first high note. Like yeah. when I was watching him as he was playing it and he was really like, <laughs> filling himself up like a balloon like yeah. every like <laughs> expanded about twice the size just for that uh that line but That's yeah i i really like that bit because it kind of it always makes me feel like it's almost like a bit of a heisty kind of moment in yeah. the track i don't know what it is about it it's just that the the melodic movement of it just kind of brings out like a heistiness in it um, yeah that was quite hard to record as well because it was obviously we were doing it all in one in one shot with sort of the whole orchestra in there together and it was um we could have done with a few more meters between the brass and the strings really on that (laughs) you can't sort of turn it down but it does sound great and they you know they nailed it so do you like kind of having the because i think that really worked in this instance that kind of feedback because we it was quite we already had an arrangement of it and it was kind of quite more traditional but I think that really added an energy and fun through that section that was kind of as you say needed at that point but to kind of retain the interest how do you find kind of getting bits of feedback of that and then kind of reacting to them and trying to incorporate something that maybe wasn't in the original I mean I've kind of over the years you you get used to sort of feedback whether it's sort of helpful or not (laughs) so it's it's always worth giving something a go and I'm always open to sort of trying something and this is one of those things that really sort of worked out. And you're incredibly quick at making changes that are quite big two pieces like what it, what is that because of your process or are you just like in a mindset of where it's like you're kind of non-judgmental about what it is while you're doing it just seeing where it goes and then or is it a bit of both? Yeah I think it is a bit of both I mean um, one of the key things with this was getting it sort of mapped out into a tempo so that you can sort of make changes like that because quite often you'll start something and it'll be you'll be sort of playing lot live without any kind of map yeah. so obviously removing a bar tends to be quite tricky or yeah sliding something along but luckily this one sort of early on kicked the session into shape and then that made it a lot easier so what was your process then so you say you started you played it through on the piano which is kind of where you found that descending passage and kind of like that but what was your process sort of from there I mean, I generally, I don't tend to start stuff on the piano because it always sort of turns into something that sounds a bit kind of sad and emotional. <laughs> so I have a sort of favourite um, kind of pizzicato string patch that I play everything in like a sort of bad pub pianist. Amazing. And I, Because I haven't got the screen in front of me, I just kind of play it, feel around it, sort of first pass with my with my hands. So everything kind of comes out first of all sounding completely chaotic. And then you sort of work back from that and... Um, and so that's kind of, yeah, just get the basics down and then kind of work with it from there. But I tend to sort of try and get, 
sort of the first thing that's in your head down and then you can kind of you can work from that so you kind of cover as much ground as you can do you do that and then go back and try and get a second idea or do you do that and then you're like that is often your best idea generally the first thing that comes out tends to be the sort of freshest so i always try and get something down really quick i mean if i have a briefing i'll sort of jump on it straight away even if i'm sort of telling everyone that I'm not available till tomorrow I kind of (laughs) it's almost like stolen time when you can kind of get in and just get ahead of the game Um, and do you play that to picture or do you watch a picture through and then play uh, it's generally just sort of busking along so it's kind of it's kind of feeling your way around it and then you can kind of you can mess around with sort of how fast you're going and little kind of refrains so that first pass is just a sort of instant reaction to to the picture which is why it's always easier if you've got like a nicely edited kind of cut to work to, whereas if you're working to an animatic or something, it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot harder. But it tends to sort of come out in the first pass and you just tweak it from there. Right, yeah. Does the first pass then, I take it you're recording that and then kind of shifting it around for timing? I mean, Logic has this, I work in Logic and it has this really nice thing where if if I put it in record and play, I tend to feel like a psychological pressure to get it right. But Logic has this thing where you can play it and then sort of go back and go grab that take. Right, yeah. And the psychological difference between those two things is amazing because you're sort of, it's like... Yeah, yeah, no you know, pressure at all. As soon as the one. red light goes on, you're like, oh, <laughs> this is it. Um, <laughs> Don't mess it up. So everything is done that way, which is really annoying if you get a really good pass and then you kind of press the button at the wrong time and you lose it. But it's all those little kind of mind tricks against yourself to kind of get there which is I love it psyching yourself out yeah it's almost like composer OCD (laughs) I think it's just the way I've kind of evolved so it's um that's the way I work it's so interesting that you're so aware of it as well but it still works (laughs) yeah I mean it's all about fooling yourself I tend to work really well in the evenings as well it's kind of if I normally get a briefing at sort of four o'clock on a Friday that's got to be in for a Tuesday or something I'll have that that night will be the most productive time on it. So I'll kind of instantly get some stuff down. And then sort of if you come in at nine o'clock on a Monday morning and try and write, it's so much harder. So it's um, that kind of relaxed kind of evening, you know, turn the lights down, just sort of take away all the pressure. That tends to be the time where where you can get sort of the best stuff done. So it is about just fooling yourself, really. And do you kind of, if you have a brief in the morning, do you wait until the evening in in (laughs) the zone to do it? or Uh, I just close the curtains and turn the lights off. (laughs) (laughs) So it's darkness is the thing. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I think it's, yeah, you kind of don't have the distraction of kind of emails and phone calls. So it almost feels like kind of stolen time. Right, yeah. Where you can just sort of, I don't know, yeah, there's a big psychology involved. It's a battle against myself most of the time. And do you also kind of limit yourself to how long you're going to spend on an idea initially? Because, like I said, you're insanely quick at like getting a brief, uh, getting a first pass over to us a lot of the time. So, is is it kind of just you're working at the speed that you're working? It will take as long as it takes, or are you like I'm going to spend the next two hours doing this and see where it's at? I think that's more kind of fear than anything else. Right. It's kind of it. <laughs> as soon as you get that call, you just sort of have that instant moment of, ah, what am I going to do? So it's kind of getting stuff down quickly is almost like a, you know, it's a reassurance for you. And um, also, obviously, we're not given the luxury of time often. No. no. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. If I have, 
if I have two weeks on a brief, I'll struggle a lot more than if I have two days because it's just there's that time to sit there and sort of choose a sound and mm. you know fiddle with it and it's often just a lot more natural if you just have a bit of pressure and sort of yeah get your head down with this one were you looking at an arrangement like or were you were you working everything out by ear did you look at did you reference scores of the original at all or were you just kind of going in and i had quite a sort of um traditional sort of uh, music theory sort of upbringing yeah. but I've I've basically just sort of ignored all that and <laughs> I do everything <laughs> everything kind of by ear which is know uh, the rules disregard the yeah. rules kind of yeah or, or maybe, maybe it's just that I'm a bit rusty on it but um, it's a lot more natural to just kind of like sit and feel your way around it on a keyboard and um, and do it that way but it's yeah there is there's moments where you kind of go through and you're just like am I you know have I done something wrong? And then you kind of, that's obviously where you're just kind of writing yourself, but it's um, its its a lot more natural for me to just kind of play it out in my head and then get it down on the keyboard. Do you ever find like your background in music theory, does that ever come in useful when you're looking at how to kind of transition from one section to the next or, um, uh, or are you really not thinking about it? It's just not kind so of- much on the writing. I mean, there's that moment where you're kind of, in in front of the orchestra and someone sort of shouts is that supposed to be an E flat and it's useful then to kind of be able to go uh, I think so um, but I don't I'd, I'd approach things from a very kind of like non sort of theoretical yeah, just how background it yeah it's more about the sound and the feel of it for me than the um, getting everything kind of exactly right. Right, yeah, that's cool. So what is your, what was your background? Where? Do, how did you kind of get here. I mean, my mum was a music teacher, so we always had kind of music in the family. And I mean, we had a loft full of instruments. So I kind of, even as a kid, I'd pop up and grab the bagpipes and have a, <laughs> have a blast. Bagpipes, <laughs> bagpipes was, not expect- was not expecting that to be the first one to come out. No, too right. It didn't really help because I still can't play the bagpipes. But, Amazing, um, though. It's Yeah, I mean, I had a very kind of, I played in orchestras and I was was actually a drummer and a percussionist um, when I was growing up. So I I kind of, I was always around music and then went to university and did music. So it's always been kind of something that's been around and um, luckily I kind of didn't have to go and get a job doing anything else. (laughs) um, Straight in then. And were you straight in as a composer or? Uh, No, I actually, I worked in a music shop for a while and then... um, I worked uh, installing sort of studios for people. So I did, um, I mean, I was kind of around London studios and composers. And I mean, for me, that was my sort of break into it. I was kind of go and do a, install a studio for someone and then I'd sort of pick up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) it was more more just sort of like, I I, I mean, I was like a sponge. It was kind of, you see someone working and you kind of, oh, that's quite handy. Or So it was a really informal kind of, it's basically kind of espionage <laughs> but also i feel like you can't underestimate the value of kind of overheard conversations yeah, yeah. in those scenarios <laughs> like how people react to things yeah. what they're saying what they're doing no i mean it, it is interesting looking back now it was a great kind of education because i was constantly sort of thrown in to fix a pro tools rig for somebody who was in the middle of scoring a film or something so it was um and then gradually just mm. kind of got offered bits of kind of additional music and writing through there right and um, I mean, I had a couple of people. I did, did um, a lot of stuff with Anthony Phillips, who's a great composer, and he was um, 
one of the family members of Genesis and he kind of took me under his wing and got mm. me into doing sort of production music. It's another composer, Samuel Sim, I did a lot of stuff with kind of early on. So then I just kind of started getting work sort of under those guys right. and then just sort of moved my way into it as much as I could. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> was it kind of a gradual thing as you, you were picking up more composition work and then you just decided like this, there was just enough of it to dedicate your entire time to doing that or was there a moment where you were like this is what I'm going to focus on doing now uh, I mean my entry into TV was a very sort of um, rude awakening really we did um, I was working with Samuel Sim and we um, got offered to do the music for the bill <laughs> so I was kind of I went from installing a Pro Tools rig one week to scoring 52 episodes of the bill a year wow. within, <laughs> within a couple of months <laughs> so it was it was a real I mean I when I started that off I was kind of I obviously knew all the sort of software and yeah. knew my way around it but to just suddenly be given an episode to kind of score within a couple of weeks it was a bit of a sort of it was a very fast education but yeah um, I mean looking back on it now it was a fantastic way of getting into doing what I'm doing but it was it yeah. was a sort of, um, it was a very sort of abrupt <laughs> entry into the world of film it's music. Big shift. Yeah. <laughs> and were you scoring? So were you there? Were you Samuel Sims' assistant at that point, or were you scoring under your own name? No, I was working. I was working for him. <clears throat> I was. He, I mean, he was incredibly busy doing different projects, so I was just kind of picking up bits through him. But the bill was such a sort of massive uh, monolith, really. I mean, that was we sort of finish an episode and the courier would arrive to pick up the finished dvd and then they drop the next one off so that was um it was pretty relentless but Madness. it was uh, i mean that's probably where the speed came from to be yeah. honest because <laughs> turns <laughs> out there of, is an answer to that yeah. and it's the bill <laughs> there you go this <laughs> is like a um, psychologist psychologist yeah i mean that was you'd you'd have to cover kind of 40 minutes of music a week which is it's a fair amount of music. That is. Wow. So there wasn't a lot of time for kind of sitting around, sort of coming up with ideas, looking for inspiration. It yeah, was no just sort second of, ideas needed there. Yeah. First ones How only. Long Get is it the down. Bill? It's a bit. An it hour. was an hour. It was an hour episode. Wow, it's um, only twenty minutes once a week. Music. Yeah, but I mean, it was just it was hectic. <laughs> but um, and there was a lot of sort of like you know, once you've written something, you can reuse material, but it was very different sort of right, yeah. every week so um so that was kind of basically going from that to doing sort of more advertising stuff was fantastic because you know however many edits of a 30 second advert you send it's <laughs> thought we were tight for easier. time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i shouldn't said anything <laughs> how do you find the how what what's the difference like between other than obviously it's shorter duration, so it's less less work overall when you have to make an edit. But I imagine you have to cram a lot more into advertising as in storytelling than if you have 40 minutes in an episode to kind of do that over the course of the yeah, whole episode. Time to develop themes and stuff. Yeah, stuff like that. I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because they're both sort of an art form in themselves. But um, I think with kind of advertising it is that sort of pressure to get your idea over in 30 seconds and and often the music's working really hard mm. um i mean especially in the coke advert because there's no dialogue so yeah. you really are sort of front and center yeah um whereas with you know if you're scoring a 40 minute episode there's a lot of it gets lost under under dialogue but i, I quite like that challenge of sort of having to turn sort of 30, 30 seconds of, <laughs> of music into something that's actually kind of makes sense but and which is why um 
when you're sort of working on a two and a half minute film, getting mm. it down to the 30 second edits always, that's always quite a nice challenge because you're trying to sort of, you're working, telling a story really quickly. Yeah, and I always think that must be, so Paul Harcastle at Trim edited this and I just think for the editors as well, like when Sam Brown directed it and when the director and editor are trying to kind of get the story into that amount of time as well as you yeah. kind of, because you start with your like long director's cut sort of three minutes and so you've got loads of time to kind of develop the story and kind of give you all the keys to what's happening and then as it kind of gets shorter and shorter I feel like the music also has to work harder to kind of signpost some of those moments as well. Yeah I think that was one of the bigger challenges with working with an existing track because you can't just sort of cull a whole section yeah. <laughs> it's got to make sense it's got to you've got to get the sort of musical idea across but with this one there was obviously quite a long passage of sort of chord progression to actually make it make sense so that was probably a bit trickier getting down to the sort of I mean when we were doing like the really short versions you've got yeah, sort yeah. of 15 seconds <laughs> there's not much chance of getting an ending so um so yeah that's a challenge but it's it's quite enjoyable in a way it's it's kind of and once you know you're onto the edits, then you're kind of almost home and dry because hopefully they're almost. not gonna they're not gonna throw out the idea <laughs> at that stage. But. I also think there's so many nice sync moments in this. It just made me think about that kind of because you have that kind of um mysterious, you don't quite know what's happening through the opening, and then as the initial idea is formed in the boy's head use the call and response within the track to kind of set up the idea as he's watching the chimney and then he kind of pans over to look at the boxes and it just works so perfectly mm. to set up the idea with that that moment within the track yeah i mean this one the, the kind of track follows the sort of boy's journey really nicely so it's those moments where you just kind of as long as you can keep that going it kind of keeps the whole thing centered yeah what was you mentioned about the trumpet line feeling maybe a bit of guilt about how hard, <laughs> how hard it was <laughs> to perform um how when you're writing or arranging, how much are you thinking about playability for the orchestra and how much are you thinking of just this is how it needs to sound? Only the truth now, please. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very tricky because you're also not quite sure what's going to get recorded. So you have yes. to, you're in that dangerous sort of territory where you can't just go, it'll be all right on the day. Yeah. And I'm just going to kind of, you know, make sure the right notes are there. It's got to sound kind of like a finished product yeah. and people are people kind of expect that now even from a demo it's got a yeah you know it's not 100%. like the old days the expectations on the demos are so high yeah which i mean helps because then if you get down to the last minute and you haven't got time to record something you've got something that sounds like an oboe rather than you know a sort of midi part so it's um it does make life easier in a way but then i mean it's it's full of pitfalls i had a session once where um I accidentally I changed a key just to make life easier with going into a sort of second queue for a TV show and then went into the studio and recorded it and realised that I hadn't transposed it back. And the orchestra, I mean, <laughs> the players in London are fantastic. They'll play anything that's in front of them, but I had all, half the orchestra playing in C and half playing in C sharp and they just they played the entire take and it just sounded, it sounded terrible. But they just kind of <laughs> looked up at me at the end. 
And I was like, oh, okay. One little button press. Yeah, right? Let me come back to you. I'll make some adjustments. <laughs> I love that they just played through it yeah, yeah. despite... Yeah. And there's no looks either. You're just kind of sitting there going, thanks very much. We'll just try that again. <laughs> and does anything... Obviously, I mean, I imagine the answer to this is going to be no, but when you have programmed it and then you go into the live, is, does it always match your expectations? Uh, I, I mean, hopefully it exceeds them because, you, I mean, there's certain things that you just can't really get over with samples. And it's, I don't know, you do find yourself writing for the samples as well where you kind of know that your sound isn't going to be, it's not going to be able to do a certain thing that you can get away with. Yeah, when so someone plays it. Right, mm. yeah. So quite often you'll write yeah. something that you just think, this is going to sound great, and you'll kind of have to tell everyone, this is going to sound fine. Yeah, yeah, and, getting everyone to buy into that. But mm. I mean, the sound, when you get into Abbey Road and you've got an orchestra playing it, you, you know you've got that extra kind of 20% at the end of, of that, and no one's ever unhappy with a, oh, with a session honestly, like that. Honestly, I feel like that's my favourite bit of this job. Like when you get in, like in this instance, we recorded in Abbey Road Studio One, and it was just unbelievable. Like, I just remember seeing kind of all the creatives' faces and they were just completely blown away by yeah. it from even the first pass. And it was like, these players have never seen this music before. They, yeah, we worked with Andy Brown at uh, London Metropolitan Orchestra and they are, yeah, they were just unbelievable on that day. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely always helps to have the whole sort of crew arrive for the session because you know that that's going to, get you over the line and Definitely. it is it's a fantastic sound when they're all yeah it, i was in the live room uh, for the first kind of half of the session and going down to the control room for the second half it was insane basically how well it was balanced and mixed in the live room and it basically didn't change when, when i went down to the control room like it it just sounded like a finished recording in the room and that was like their first playthrough. It was insane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always I always find myself leaving a bit of the sampled stuff in mm. just because it is, I mean, it, it sounds fantastic, but it's always does have a sort of completely different sound. So you're always worried people will sort of miss the, the sort of sampled version. Yeah. So there's always like a fader at the end where you're like kind of pushing it in a little bit just to give it an extra kind of 50 strings or so. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the kind of weight that you get from an orchestra when they're kind of playing you just can't sort of emulate with no with any type of sample so it's it's great how did you find because the percussion section was samples on on this um but obviously that we weren't recording the orchestra with that uh how do you how did you find that when you're listening to it and you know that it's not the final full arrangement there are sections to be added later are you kind of focusing and focusing in on each section and then just kind of making sure that they're playing exactly right or yeah i mean I, I hardly ever record percussion just for logistics it's kind of i mean there's a lot of kind of secret sauce in things like this with sort of low booms and sort of growly bits that <laughs> yeah, you just yeah. you'd have to have an entire kind of taiko <laughs> band sitting behind you so it is there is a fair bit of cheating involved in the percussion parts but um it's mainly about the strings. It's kind of, I mean, just you just can't get that sound with anything else. And even if you've only got sort of eight players on top of a kind of sample background, it just it just gives it so much life. Yeah, yeah. The life and musicality you get from the live playing, I just don't think can be emulated in. No, I mean, you know, the programming is amazing, but 
yeah, it's just not, the, I don't know, it's not the same. It's just yeah. the way that they, you, you kind of hear them come together in, in, in a single space. I guess samples are often recorded. They are live recordings of actual players. But yeah, I think when you, when you can hear them actually mix in the room, like in the same air, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like a nuance to it. I that, think there is a, we always used to put in a sort of wild track of just kind of background noise to a lot of orchestral stuff because you don't get that kind of, yeah, just yeah, like the room. It's very clean. Um, and, and all the sort of little noises of kind of people moving around and stuff, it all adds to the kind of, the sort of um, feel of it. But it's, I mean, it has got so much better now. It's even like 10 years ago when you were sort of working with samples, it, you couldn't really sort of get away with it. Whereas now it's like, it's getting better and better. But <clears> I'm finding I'm using musicians more now than I did 10 years ago. So it's not kind oh, of to the detriment of that. It's... It's just, um, and it's nice when obviously you get a bit of budget and you can, yeah, you can sort of go in and do an Abbey Road session. It's just, it just kind of tops it off. The absolute dream. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Literally love it. I wanted to go back to kind of a bit of how you got into it. And obviously, you've spoken about the composers that you work with and obviously how generous they were with their time. And then we met you through. Ben Cox. Yeah. Another amazing singer songwriter. Yeah, yeah. It's so nice that everyone. I don't know, do you find that with other composers and other musicians? Because he obviously was like, oh, this job isn't for me, but you should definitely speak to Chris White. He's incredible. And then obviously we met you and have worked with you ever since. Yeah, I mean, me and Ben go back a long time. He's my sort of stag do buddy. He's always, <laughs> he always, he turns up to people's stag do's even if he doesn't know them. But he's, um, I mean, me and Ben have always kind of been happy to recommend each other. I think it's mainly because we, we each do each other's styles so badly so it's there's absolutely no crossover i mean he's he's a fantastic songwriter and he's got that real sort of unique voice whereas yeah. i've always been a lot more on the sort of orchestral slightly more sort of traditional side so we've always kind of given each other work and stuff which is nice so but, nice i really like but it. i've never really found anyone in the industry who's not happy to sort of pass along work it's not um it's not it's a sort of good community of composers really we're not sort of at each other's necks desperate yeah, yeah. to get the next job yeah. but, <laughs> and it always comes back to sort of um, pay you off later anyway if you're sort of happy to set someone up with something there's always something in return definitely and do you yeah. often collaborate with other composers uh not as much as i'd like to right i mean that's one i've always worked kind of pretty much on my own that obviously has advantages because you're kind of you're the boss and you get to choose yeah. what goes whereas <laughs> collaborating can be frustrating but I'd, I'd, I'd love collaborating and I'd, lo I'd like to do more um, but it's just the logistics really of working sort of remotely especially with someone it's right. we've done a few bits but it's um yeah it's definitely something I'd like to do more of what is it about collaborating that you like as opposed to is I, it I think it's just other people's good ideas right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, if I do collaborate it's always nice to have someone else start it and then you develop it I'm really? not a very good idea starter I don't think if I'm working with someone but and it's often in types of you know styles of music that you're not particularly sort of um, confident in that it's nice to have someone who is sort of come in and give their input on it but yeah. Um, I feel like you're quite like that as a composer in general, though, because often if we say brief you, it sends kind of you often don't just send one idea, you'd send a couple. And then even if they're not fully formed, like we would often have a discussion at kind of a sketch stage 
and then you'll be like, which one do you reckon is working? And we'll kind of collaborate and go have a chat about, you know, which ones are working and which ones aren't from there. So I feel like even with us, it feels quite collaborative. don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) in terms of kind of getting multiple ideas across that, again, I think is fear where you just, <laughs> you're not confident <laughs> on one thing. So you just kind of throw a few things at it. But often there's a number of different things that can work over the same film. So it's you don't want to constrain yourself too much to one idea. But um, I mean, that's what I love working with you guys because it is a sort of collaboration. It's not often as a composer, you're in, in your own studio working on your own and you can kind of get overly confident in an idea or you can sort of miss something so it is really nice when you can sort of bounce an idea off someone and sort of get some immediate feedback and you're a great barrier between sort of me and the client so I'm not sort of sending someone an idea and then you know there's that panic it's like it's nice to get someone turning around and going have you thought of doing this or there might be another option on this so it's a it's a very sort of like comfortable working relationship really yeah, I, I I always really like collaborating with you on compositions because, yeah, you're very responsive and you're always very open to trying something, even if it's just like an idea that doesn't really work. Um, it's just kind of fun to trade ideas and, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always, with, with TV especially, I'd been very used to sort of directors sending <laughs> minute notes back of kind of you know should this e flat be there so it's I'm, i've never had a problem with sort of getting feedback from people and at the end of the day you're you're doing music for someone else's film it's not yeah you know it's not me just kind of doing a solo album or something so it's <clears throat> you're obviously you've got to be ready for that kind of feedback but it's i don't think i've had much I don't think I've had many things back where I thought that's a terrible idea. I'm just going to ignore <laughs> that one. <laughs> I often think that though, from even like our supervision producer side, like obviously you're finding music for somebody else's creative idea, mm. whatever it is, whether it's a film, whether it's a TV episode, whether it's an advert, whatever. Um, you're kind of helping them execute their creative vision. And it's kind of remembering that. And obviously you can offer ideas and you can offer opinions. But that's what we're trying to, the end goal is actually what's in their head and whether we can help them achieve that. I mean, occasionally I've had things that I've written that I've thought, this is a great piece of music, this is really nice. And then you get some feedback kind of saying, this just doesn't work with the film. And um, sometimes you're kind of, you do feel a little bit defensive, but it's it's just, um, yeah, at the end of the day, it's got to serve a purpose and it's got to work for someone else's someone else's project so you have to have that ability to go I'll save that for something else (laughs) (laughs) do you like having the kind of buffer of a supervisor producer then so that you've got that kind of relationship where you can kind of bounce those ideas off before they before they go over to client yeah I mean that definitely helps I've I've worked directly with clients before and it's it's always sort of a bit more tricky because you're trying to sort of I mean if I send something to, to you guys I'm not that worried about sort of if if I send it and it's not completely together or you know it's it's just here's an idea should is is it worth following up because often you spend a lot of time sort of working up an idea and if you're in completely the wrong direction mm. it's it can be yeah, <laughs> quite good, a laborious yeah. good to know process. At that point. <laughs> but it's a, I mean it's also really useful having uh, someone like you guys who um are obviously very musical because if you're working with a supervisor who's more on the advertising side and they're just sort of approaching it from that point of view then 
that's a lot more tricky. Whereas if someone's got a musical background, then they can obviously translate things from kind of advertising speak into into musical terms. So <laughs> it's a it's a much nicer way of working. Yeah, I definitely think translation is part of our yeah is part of our role of this role as mostly <laughs> translation. <laughs> but I think it get it kind of gets to the result quicker as well because you're obviously a lot more sort of in touch with with the other side of it as well with the film yeah. and everything. So it's it's kind of it lets me concentrate on on mm. the music. I guess it's taking a layer of pressure off you as well, having it kind of a, a barrier between going to client. It kind of just helps with that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you have to definitely be in the right frame of mind to do your, your best work. And if it's if it's a state of panic, then you're not really you're not really going to get there. So it's I've yeah I feel very kind of like protected in that way. So it's it allows you to kind of yeah spend a bit more time thinking about the music. Yeah. Do you ever write stuff just for yourself, like or like a you know a personal project or anything? And is there much of a difference in the way that you think about that? Uh, so last year, I decided that I was going to do a sort of okay. I went to see Oliver Arnold's, and I really liked the idea of kind of doing something sort of electronic classical crossover. So I sat down for a few. I had a few days clear, and I sat down and wrote a couple of bits. But um, gradually they've been sort of picked off into projects where people have been like, have you got anything that's like this? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go. Okay. <laughs> so I don't think I'll ever finish them off. Right. Um, but even if I did, I don't think I'm, I'm so used to kind of working for a purpose, which is quite nice. But but I do I, occasionally I'll sort of give myself a bit of time to try and write something, but invariably it it isn't kind of particularly useful <laughs> right yeah do you think there's like a difference in <clears throat> what it is you've written when you're writing something just for yourself or is it just because you are you're not writing for a purpose you're just kind of composing just for fun or you know just for something for yourself do you think that's the reason that you feel differently about it or do you think there is something audibly different about the tracks that you're writing uh, I mean everything comes back to sort of I think I've got such an ingrained style now that it's very hard to sort of break out of it. I did, um, I bought a piano for the studio a while ago and I kind of, um, it's actually a sort of self-playing piano, which is quite nice. Oh, so I can really kind of sit there and mess around with it and then get it to play back what I've put in. So that's been quite fun to do. But it's, it, I think in a way that's trying to trick yourself into doing something that your brain's not sort of automatically looking for. Yeah. But I mean, I do, I kind of write differently if I just sit at the piano. Um, but it's, I don't know whether it's, it's actually better. Right. It's kind of hard to say. <laughs> I don't know if anyone would ever hear it. So it's kind of, but, I'll, you know, at some point I would like to do something kind of without a sort of designated purpose, but right. whether yeah. it will happen or not, I don't know. <laughs> I wanted to go on to kind of the, the questions of, was there a score that kind of made you think about music and sound and how it worked with visual or like a school where you first remember taking notice of the music i feel like i've got a very kind of visceral sense of music it's like something um i can really feel sort of if something's working for me on a film and it's more kind of you get the kind of hair stand up on the back of your neck i've always had that with film music and certain things do it and certain things don't and obviously that doesn't mean it doesn't work with the picture but i can almost feel a good kind of score mm. um and i mean there's you get I, I the goosebumps yeah i can't think of anything in particular i mean obviously i'm a massive john williams fan and that kind of doing that type of music really has its sort of 
benefits, but it's also like kind of things like Nick Cave and Warren Ellis and sort of more organic stuff as well. I mean, in terms of what I kind of like about film music, it's generally things that I don't think I could do myself, which is that you always have a lot of admiration for people who are doing something that you think that's just, that would be impossible for me to to do. Yeah, yeah. So it's I don't think there's one particular thing, but I mean, certain scores like Thomas Newman and things like that, it's just, yeah. you have that kind of goosebumps when you hear it and that's what makes a, a great film, film score for me. What are your kind of listening habits outside of film uh, like watching something to picture do you is there a certain type of music that you like listening to just for music's sake or i'm pretty terrible to be honest so if i listen to the radio <laughs> i listen to talk radio <laughs> i can't as soon as i leave the studio yeah, i almost no need to clear my head so i listen to a lot of talking but part of that's probably just from being locked in a studio for years um but i've, I've got a really wide sort of like interest in music yeah. um do you find that if you don't compose regularly, you find it dif- more difficult to go back to? I don't. I mean, I don't think I've had any yeah. time where I haven't been composing <laughs> regularly for a while, which might be quite nice. But I feel like I've always got my head in something. Although I don't. I, it would be nice to sit down and write something that wasn't for a purpose occasionally. But it's. I've been very lucky. I've always had sort of plenty to keep me busy. So it's a. It's almost like an autopilot now. It's. You know, I'm kind of in there and doing it without thinking too much about it, which is probably good. It's probably because you do it so much, though. Like It's almost like practice, you know, if you kind of keep it going every day, then it's just those muscles are there working automatically. Whereas if you don't get into it, maybe ideas don't come as quickly. The only thing I do find tricky is trying to break out from what you naturally sort of find yourself doing because you've got such a muscle memory with writing music and you're so used to kind of getting things together quick so I'm forever buying kind of bits of gear that I think oh that'd be quite nice it might make me do things differently (laughs) but then you don't really have time to sort of look into the instruction manual to work out how it works so you end up with a lot of kind of boxes in the studio (laughs) just sort of like you just push to one side but I mean I always have a desire to sort of do something a bit different but it never really sort of never really happens. What kind of gear do you most regularly use? Is it do you have like a wider range, a, a wide range of things that you're using, or is it just kind of like keyboard? Or uh, I mean, with orchestral stuff, it's it's pretty much computer based. Right. So, with, are you clicking stuff in with a mouse then, like writing? A, a lot of the time, yeah. No I way. mean, I've got a sort of, I've you know, I'm playing things on the keyboard, but a lot of the time it's more computer programming than right. <laughs> kind of playing. But I do, I mean, I've. I bought a cello a while ago and I kind of now I'm adding cello to absolutely everything <laughs> I do just to, just just to kind of practice really but but it does help to definitely have some kind of live element into yeah, what you're doing and it just kind of mixes it up a bit but um I mean these days it's kind of it's definitely very computer based and with the type of music I'm doing you just can't sort of whip out a flute and kind of have a bash <laughs> it's got to be yeah it's good <laughs> Pretty on point. With with the programming, um, do you spend like a lot of time kind of learning that almost like you would an instrument? I'm always really impressed with your programming that you have kind of these moments where it it must be sort of automated that you, what you're doing to make it just feel so natural. And I think that's kind of a telling sign of a composer that 
you know really kind of know has a lot of experience doing it and knows what they're doing but yeah do you spend like a lot of time almost like researching and learning techniques on doing that uh, I'm glad it comes across that way because oh, does it not? <laughs> <laughs> is it not? Oh, I mean, I'm pretty terrible to be honest. If I if I buy something new in the studio, I'd love to say I sit there and kind of like get on top of it. But a lot of the time, it is happy accident. No way. And it's kind of feeling your way around. But I think from experience, you just kind of you learn to work with a few core tools that you know inside out. Yeah. And then everything else is just sort of like a, a sort of bonus, really. But I mean, I find I kind of a lot of stuff, I'll kind of play something in or get something in and then I'll just chop it up and kind of, I mean, things that there's tools like Melodyne now, which are fantastic. So you can just sort of take something, chop it into tiny pieces and then replay it. Yeah. Do you ever like use other composers to check out equipment or do you find out what they're using and get recommendations or do you just kind of test stuff yourself? Uh, no, I generally sort of just spy on other people and see what's <laughs> see what's in their studios, and then I go back to espionage. That's good. Interesting. <laughs> and then you kind of you often buy things, and then you're just like, "Hang on, that sounded fantastic when they were using it. Why does <laughs> <laughs> it sound like someone like operating a Hoover when I'm doing it?" And it's um, it's very. I mean. Yeah, I don't. I I often kind of sponge ideas off people when they've got something that seems to be working for them. But I, you know, I've I've got plenty of things that don't work out that I've <laughs> purchased, and I just kind of ignore the fact that I've paid a fair amount of money for them. We were kind of talking before, and you were saying that your studio is now kind of separate from your house. Which does that make a difference to have a separate kind of creative? Obviously, you've always had a studio, but. If it's kind of inside, it's like you're kind of inside and popping down to get a cup of tea and then it's like all in the same building, whereas it must be quite nice. I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but is it nice to have that separation? I mean, I walk kind of 20 metres to work, which is that 20 metres is very important. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's I, I think you've got to be kind of. I mean, I don't. I've worked in in the house, and especially with lockdown and kids around and stuff. It's been that was very tricky, so it kind of pushed me into getting the studio sorted. And I'm very lucky. I've got a, a building that I've got that I can work in. Although my wife's moved upstairs into the office, which is kind of <laughs> not as ideal as it sounds. I can't can't actually get in to make a coffee now. But <laughs> um, but no, it's it's. It is very important, I think, to have some kind of space. And I've always been quite jealous of people who sort of have a, a studio with, you know, other people around. But it's this seems to work for me really well. And it's, um, yeah, it does feel like I'm separated from, from sort of being in the house. And I mean, I don't think you're going to beat a 20... 20- 20 meter commute yeah <laughs> although when it's raining it is a bit of a pain to be honest <laughs> <laughs> just can't make it into the <laughs> weather's a mess <laughs> thanks so much again to chris for coming in and giving us a brief insight into composing for one of the most iconic brands around Please join us again for episode three of Organised Sound when we'll be speaking to another fascinating guest about composing music to picture. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, so please make sure you subscribe and give us a little review if you like what you hear. See you next time. (laughs) 